Well, we can turn back to the chapter we read, Isaiah 53, and we can read again verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Last time we looked at the first um, clause there. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And tonight we can consider the rest of the verse. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. As we have um, noticed a few times, this particular servant song of Isaiah is a bit unusual. It's unusual because it's describing an event that was hundreds of years in the future. It's also unusual because every so often, God interrupts. And uh, we can see the places where he interrupts. Uh, when he uses the words, my servant. So, the song itself, as we've seen, is in five sections. Each of the sections has three verses. And there's no indication, for example, in verse 10, the first verse in this fifth section, um, that God the Father is speaking. It could be just somebody else who's speaking. And in verse 10, whoever's speaking there, they just give a summary, as it were, of what will happen to the Messiah as he suffers and what his future will be. And that same emphasis could be in the first clause of verse 11. That out of the anguish of his soul he shall be satisfied. But it could be that the word satisfied or the image of being satisfied caused God the Father to give an additional emphasis on what this satisfaction involves. Well, the reality is that um, Jesus has, is told many times in the Bible that despite his sufferings, he had a wonderful future. And this particular servant song is full of descriptions about that great future he is going to have. I suppose it is a, a question to ask um, 
And we say it with reverence, but I think it is on a question to ask. Which would be, what do the other persons of the Trinity think of the satisfaction that the Son of God is going to have? And I think we get an answer to that question in this statement. Because the Father, once again, in this song, as it were, interrupts. Because he started the song, didn't he, in, at the end of chapter 52, with the exhortation. And it's not just a piece of advice there in verse 13 of chapter 52 as a command. Behold my servant. Behold him acting wisely. And of course, Jesus always acted wisely. He acted wisely when he was down here. And he acts wisely today. Highly exalted. One with all power in heaven and on earth. And we are exhorted here by the Father. In whatever state we're in, in whatever circumstances the surrounding world is in, and whatever difficulties the church is in, the answer to it all is behold my servant. So if God the Father is saying to his people, you may be living in circumstances that you think are drastic. And you may have no idea how we're going to get out of it. And he may say to us, in the 21st century, you may imagine you're the first to be in this position. But you're not. Times have been just as dark before. And the answer in all of these periods is to behold my servant. And that's the answer for 2023 as well. Look at Jesus. We may have entered a period of history which is too much for us to handle. But then, that's the story of life. It always has been a story of life. As even Paul himself said, who is sufficient for these things? There's no other place to go but to behold God's servant. If God, as Jesus himself said, if God has put all authority in heaven and on earth into his hand, What's the point of looking anywhere else? It's all in his hands. 
Never goes anywhere else. We may have our own suggestions about what should be done here and there, but none of us are remotely competent to work out the big picture. But Jesus is. And therefore, we are to behold him. Now, we're, all of us are quite familiar with great and grandiose promises of politicians. Every so often we have a general election and the competing parties are all marked by the same feature. They are all promising wonderful things. And the extraordinary thing about all of them is that it doesn't take long for the other parties to point out, well, you can't do that, and you can't do this, and you can't do the next thing. And even as uh, we look at them, uh, this thought might cross our minds, and we might say, well, does any of them have a basic feature that would guarantee all their promises? Do they have some kind of um, idea that no one else has thought of before, but if it is implemented, their promises are guaranteed? And I suppose we might say to that, well, it doesn't look like it. But you know, in this particular song, there are incredible promises. As far as I can see, there's three of them. There's three promises in this song that are extraordinary. And we can see two of them in... Um, in verse um, where we are promised peace and healing, if I can find the verse. Yeah, there in verse 5. I mean, that's an incredible promise in verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes... We are healed. And of course, the word healing there is the same word for salvation. So the, these are two of the promises. And peace is shalom. Wholeness. It's more than just a nice feeling. I mean, the word peace covers the atmosphere, the environment. It's external as well as internal. That's an extraordinary promise. It's the kind of the universal search, isn't it? For peace. For some kind of life that gives stability and satisfaction and serenity. And also the possibility of 
full healing. What's the Bible's picture of full healing? How does the Bible describe a totally healed person? Well, the answer to that question is glorification. To be glorified. To somehow, if we take Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1, that at present, every Christian has got the first fruits of the Spirit. What will life be like to have the fullness? If the first fruits have given us life, what will the fullness be like? So glorification is the Bible's ultimate description of healing. Sin has, as it were, unglorified us and taken us down to the depths in which we are. And we can think of all different ways by which sin has affected us. But there is a day coming when glory will be all around. Unlike and similar to the peace, it's external as well as internal. So these are two great promises. And the third one is there in verse 12, when it talks about Jesus. And after his sufferings, there's going to come a time when he's going to divide the spoil with the strong. And, of course, that's a picture taken from Victoria's armies. When they go and defeat another nation and, they t- and the soldiers, in order as they celebrate their victory, their general divides with them whatever they've captured. And it's a picture of the conquering Savior dividing his spoil with his people. And an earthly general, well, no matter what it was he conquered, eventually the amount of the booty would run out. But the picture that's given here in this this song, this prophecy, is that Jesus will be constantly dividing the spoil with the strong. It's another way of describing his inheritance. What he shares with his co-heirs. So there's three great promises. Peace, glory, and constant provision. And is there anything in the Savior's strategy that guarantees the three of them. And an answer, I think, is given to that question in our verse. What guarantees to us that we are going to have 
eternal peace and that we are going to have eternal healing and that we are going to have endless sharing participation with the exalted Savior. What guarantees it? That's as certain now as it will be on the day when Jesus comes back. And the answer is there in verse 11. We shall be accounted righteous. We want to put it in New Testament language. Justification. Being made right with God guarantees the eventual possession of eternal peace and glorification and participation in all the Savior's resources. I mean, we're told at the Reformation by Luther that justification is the doctrine of a standing or falling church. And it's true. If we understand justification and we are among the justified, we will look ahead with anticipation and with a degree of God-given certainty that ahead of us there's eternal peace and eternal glorification and eternal participation in whatever Jesus has for his people. So unlike politicians who don't have something that can guarantee the promises, we have something. Righteousness. Reckoned to our account. So I just want us to think about that briefly. Just go through the verse and maybe highlight one or two things uh, that it mentions. First of all, we can think of the title that God the Father gives to his beloved Son. He calls him the righteous one, my servant. And when we think of the word righteous, of course, that reminds us of his holy character. And as we think about the life of Jesus, and that's a very important thing to think about. It's good to think about his death, but we have to think about his life as well. Because we need both his life and his death in order to be justified. And as we think of his holy soul, whether as a child or as an adolescent or as an adult, Sinless all the way. 
extraordinary. Never once in his earthly journey did he ever have a sinful thought. Never once in his holy soul did a sinful temptation arise. Plenty of temptations came from, from outside. But none came from inside. Never once was his holy will did it ever possess the slightest inclination to do something wrong. It never crossed his mind to explore a wrong idea. In his life, there's constant balance, perfection always on display. On one occasion, he said to the Jews, which of you convinces me of sin? A challenge, isn't it? It's both a self-description and a challenge. Jesus, when he says that to them, which of you convicts me of sin? He knows there's none they can convict him of. And he says to them, you know my life. Highlight, if you can, one feature of my life that is inappropriate. And there wasn't one. He was holy. And even in God's providence, as it comes towards the end of his, the Savior's journey in this world, and he's condemned, numbered with the transgressors, God in his providence uh, works, arranges for Pilate the judge and for Judas the betrayer and for the criminal crucified beside him, each of them to say he's innocent. There never was someone like Jesus. I mean, Jesus as God is infinitely above all humans. But Jesus as man is far above all humans. He's not just a little bit better than the second best, whoever that would be, between Jesus and all people. There's a chasm. And the chasm is there because he is perfect. No imperfections in him. But in them, even their best is full of imperfection. So is life. We should think about it. The God the Father is quite clear Behold my servant. Gaze at him. Contemplate him. Wherever he is, think about him. Because rather extraordinarily, one day all his people will be conformed to his likeness.
But there he was. And God says, The righteous one, my servant. But because his connect, these two descriptions are connected, he's not just speaking about his character. He's also speaking about his office. His character is righteous, but his office is to be a servant. And that means that everything he did, he did because God asked him to do it. And he did it for a reason. Why did Jesus live a perfect life? Well, go to Calvary. And there we see the Lamb of God. And of course, when, the Apostle, when the, John the Baptist describes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we're meant to listen to that and say, well, he is likening Jesus to the lambs that were offered up in the sacrifice. And the one thing that marked these lambs was no flaws. One little flaw, one little mark on a lamb made it unsuitable to be a sacrifice. And if there had been one little flaw in the life of Jesus, he couldn't be a sacrifice. One little wrong thought, perhaps one day walking down the street in Nazareth, that would have disqualified him. But he never had that. It was perfection all the way. God's servant. And of course, he's making his way to the cross. And as any servant does, he's got to carry a burden. And while he's living that perfect life, he's carrying an awful burden, which we'll think about in a minute. But there he is. God's servant sent to glorify God in a way that no other human has ever done. But at the same time, to be our representative and to work out a constant perfect life that would be reckoned to our account when we trust in him and become the guarantee. Because being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Paul in that chapter goes on to describe all the benefits that come to us. <clears throat> I'm sure we all know Boner's lines. And if we don't know them, we should know them. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I rest my whole eternity. My whole eternity of blessing depends on the life and death of Jesus. But God the Father's got more to say about that. He says, by his knowledge, by his knowledge shall my righteous, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many 
to be accounted righteous. What does someone in charge need? Well, we might answer that question and say, well, he or she needs power. And no doubt that's true. But if all they've got is power, well, who knows what they could do? In addition to power, they have to have knowledge, understanding, wisdom. And as God the Father says in verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Where is he going to act wisely? Well, if we go back to verse 13 of chapter 52, we're told where his wisdom will be displayed. It will be displayed when he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And there in verse 11 of chapter 53, the righteous one, after he has suffered, and once he enters into his experience of being satisfied, and the experience of him being satisfied started with his resurrection and his ascension. And since then, by his knowledge, by his abilities, by his grasp of things, he's going to cause many to be accounted righteous. And in making this announcement, we could say that the Heavenly Father here is highlighting the main activity of Jesus down the centuries. What is his priority? Our exalted Savior. What is his aim every day? What did he do today that he hadn't done yesterday? Well, somewhere in the world today, he has made someone to be accounted righteous. We've no idea how many people were converted today. But what can be said about all of them is Jesus has caused them as he reigns on the divine throne and as he governs providence. He has arranged for them in all of their individual situations to be accounted righteous. As he, by his, the Holy Spirit, sends someone there to preach and someone there to witness and someone there just to pick up a Bible and read it or whatever ways they're brought into the kingdom, he, like the, a great conductor, is just guiding it all because he has knowledge and the extraordinary thing about his knowledge is there's never a situation where he is baffled. The complex 21st century technological world 
we wonder where it's all going. How many robots will there be wandering around in 10 years' time? Our task is to watch God's servant making people righteous, causing them to be reckoned as acceptable in God's sight. So look at him. Gaze on him on the eternal throne. Busy. Never fails. He who begins the good work. He just does it. Constantly. Doesn't matter if a self-righteous as Saul of Tarsus. But if you're as far away as the Philippian jailer, in a minute, he can do it. Even a minute is too long. He speaks the word, and it is done. And that's what Paul uses, isn't it? He takes the image of creation. He who spoke in the beginning and said, let there be light, has shined in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Many things will puzzle the church. In a certain sense, these kind of things have got to be dealt with to a certain level. But we're never said to us, behold the church. But we are told, behold my servant. And how many are going to get the benefit of this? What's the number going to be like? And of course, a whole lot of pointless speculation has gone into this question. Will there be more saved or lost? Well, whatever side you come down on, you won't know if you're right or wrong until the final day. But the picture that is given to us is at the end of the day, the number of the redeemed will be very large. And of course, Jesus himself said that, didn't he, when he When the Roman centurion said to him, you don't have to walk to my house in order to heal my servant. Just say the word and it will be done. And Jesus, as he looked at that man, and he said, I've never seen such faith in Israel. And that almost seemed to cause him to look ahead because he next he goes on to say, many shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. Many shall come. And there in the book of Revelation we're told there will be a number that no one can count from every people group, from every tribe, from every nation, from every language. 
and they'll all be there, billions of them. And the only reason any of them are there is because the exalted Savior used his knowledge to bring all of them to a place and before he came into the world, he was doing the same thing as we sang about from David's experience in Psalm 32. But they're all going to be brought by himself. He will do it. He alone gets all the praise. We're not to elevate men no matter how great they were. There's never been a man in human history apart from Jesus who can cause someone to be born again. But the risen Savior, by his knowledge, he shall cause many to be accounted righteous. And you know, this word many, it's both, we could say, precise and imprecise. It's just many. But Jesus used the word many often, didn't he? We have often uh, just mentioned, sorry, the words he said after he saw the centurion. But then there's his own description of his work when he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in that verse from Mark chapter 10, he is combining some of the themes that occur in Isaiah 53. So maybe he was thinking about Isaiah 53 when he said that. But he saw himself as giving his life to set many free. And even when it came to him, Instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So maybe there, in the night in which he was betrayed, he was thinking of the many who are mentioned here at the end of this servant song. And it's good to know. You know, all these many, the number that no one can count is going to stand around the throne of God. There's going to be, in one way or another, degrees of glory. Yeah, they were told that. And we, and we just have to accept it. Some will get ten talents. Some had ten talents, they'll get ten cities. Some had five, and they'll get five, and so on. But there's one thing that the, each person in the, in the innumerable crowd has in common. They've all been justified. And every one of them, whatever their degree of glory, Every one of them will be in full of peace 
and every one of them will be glorified. And every one of them will share with Jesus in his resources. All because they've been justified. So as we look at ourselves, and you may at this moment think about mistakes in your life or whatever, these mistakes don't negate your justification. They don't make you one bit less justified than you were yesterday. Maybe you lost your temper and you're saying to yourself, I wish I hadn't lost my temper and I have grieved the spirit. And that may be true. But you haven't unjustified yourself. Justification never changes. You can never be more justified or less justified. You are just justified. Accepted in the beloved. And the guarantee that you are going to get an eternal world Peace and glorification and participation is all down to Jesus. And nobody is going to be staying on this great day, raising their hand and saying, wait, think of what I did on some particular date. On that day, he alone will be recognized as the Savior. He alone is worthy. And we should follow the Heavenly Father's commandment. Behold my servant. And in this verse, and we'll stop in a minute, but in this verse he say something else about him, the Heavenly Father. And we could almost say the last line in verse 11 is a prophecy or a promise of the Heavenly Father. He says there, he shall bear their iniquities. I mean, he says this centuries before it actually happened. So there's, we could say there's Certainty. I mean, there's an obvious contrast between him and them. He's the sinless one. He's the righteous one, my servant. What's he carrying? What's he bearing? What is there on his shoulders? Our iniquities. And of course, it's always important to note the word that's used to describe our sins. And the word iniquity points to the ugliness, the awfulness of sin. 
the badness of sin. And there he is, the perfect one, the one who's never had a single thought, sorry, a sinful thought, the one who's never said a sinful word, who's never done a sinful action, and what's he carrying? He's carrying the sinful thoughts of millions and the sinful words of millions and the sinful actions of millions. And where is he carrying them to? Well, who can say? But he's just carrying them to where God will be satisfied that the price has been paid. It was an enormous weight, isn't it? How heavy is one sin? We mentioned earlier, perhaps we lost our temper. How heavy is that? Well, we could say with reverence, ask Jesus. He knows how heavy it was. There were no small sins on the shoulders of Christ. But our sins, he carried them away. Never got infected by them. And that's totally astonishing. Because if you're carrying something, you're close to it. But he was never contaminated. There in the cross when he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the anguished cry of a holy man. And he's crying it because he's bearing the punishment of our sins. You know, sometimes we, we see someone who has done something wonderful, something good, and we look at him out of gratitude, or look at her out of gratitude. And that's very appropriate. It would be a, the height of rudeness for us to ignore such a person. But when we think of Jesus and what he did in his perfect life and in his atoning death, why should we ever take our eyes off him? The writer to the Hebrews tells us to consider him who suffered in such a way. When should we not consider him? We can consider him anywhere. We have this 
high privilege, but this incredible responsibility with the promise of great discoveries, just to consider him. Set our affections on things above. Why? Where Christ is. He is to be the object. Who does God the Father look at? An interesting question, isn't it? Out of the whole history of time, who's attracted the Father's attention? You could almost say, out of the whole history of eternity, who's attracted the Father's attention? The same one that he tells us to look at. Behold my servant. So may we do that. Shall we pray?